Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 149th episode of the Nauticast titled Keep Your Sword Sharp, an analysis of a Clash of Kings John 8, in which Corn Halfhand makes his last stand, but not before laying a heavy task on our very sad boy, Johnny, Johnny Snow. I feel like you could say that about all of John's father figures, but not before laying a heavy task. <laughs> That's what they all do on their way at the door. Oh, by the way, John, here's something that will cripple you emotionally for the next six to eight months. Bye. Right. And now it's Corrin's turn. Corrin's turn next. And then we get Mance Raider, Tormund Giants, Bane, Stannis Baratheon. Everyone's like, hey, John, you got a couple. Maester you got Aemon. Maester it just Aemon. keeps happening. Over and over and over again for John. It's like it's like a theme that George R. Martin likes to do with a song of Fire. <laughs> you don't say. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our not a small council, our Hand of the King Wolf Man Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, troubleshooter of systems and designer of circuit boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Heel of the Lester Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Harold the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gem that was promised. Lord Jake assisted to the Hand of the King. Lady Zena of Lyrium. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Gracious High Inquisitors, Sir Frank B. Lawrence, Prince of Dorne. Kelly, War of the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs. Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds. L- the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden. Lady Stephanie. Lord Carlos. Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God. Sir Sorcedelica. Sugar Tit Stent, the Trog Delight Warrior. Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Ambassador Chromatica, Rainbow Commander, the Ladies, and General Dems. Hall over the way for T-Wild, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Harp, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great, Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Real Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Grus- Sir Christoph Logus, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Litter of Kin and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties of the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark of the Cadaver King and Horror of Harren Hall, Ola, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils where every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Globe. Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Bone Way. Lord Charles Terrell of Highgarden. Lord Paramount of the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, War of the South, and the Heir of House Terrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Master of Zorse, Joe Snow, King of the Metro and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Blackberry the Bold, Champion of Feel-Good Times, Lady Ivory Dane, Aspiring Noble Author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Wardens of the South, and Patron of Free Wheeling Bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, She Who Suggests the Coconuts Migrate, Lord Christoph of Arendelle, Official Ice Master, Deliverer of the Valiant Pungent 
dungeon reindeer king keeper feisty pants and prince consort to his ginger sweet love queen anna lord sir septon brothers and i forgot to put it in the notes but lord travis has returned from abroad from his voyages far and wide abroad so welcome back lord travis master of ships war the waves of the kraken's bane welcome back travis Thank you so much to our counselors, as always. And yeah, special welcome back to Travis, one of our, our favorite people. We love you, buddy. Absolutely. Yeah, man. We're so ha- so glad to see you back and so glad to see you getting back in action as well in all things A Song of Ice and Fire and fandom. Our spoiler warning is to say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three dunking novels, histories, interviews, the Winsmitter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Red Relu himself, a High Lord patron, who asks, Who is the, anyway, here's Wonderwall of the A Song of Ice and Fire world? <laughs> so, for those unfamiliar, just in case you're born under a rock or 80 years old, Wonderwall is the popular song by the English band Oasis. That's very easy to mock for its kind of cliched uh, textbook guitar nature. And so it's an, it's an easy meme to make fun of anyone who's like going to pull out an acoustic guitar at an inappropriate time and go, Anyway, here's Wonderwall. <laughs> To distract or to make yourself the center of attention or just as a non sequitur. That's just kind of the meme. So, Jeff, who would do that in the Song of Ice and Fire world? Uh, there's two figures that easily come to mind. The first is the obvious one, which is Rhaegar Targaryen, right? He's the yes. guy who says, anyways, here's Summerhall as he plays because he plays them. <laughs> yes. What's, what's the, he plays Jenny's song, right? For, uh, or is that the song that he plays or he hears that from uh, – as he's rolling around Westeros, or, right. or yeah, one of those one of those types of songs. I, I can't remember. Right? He's like me. Play a song. I never pulls out into like a, <laughs> an immense harp covered in gemstones, and just like I didn't think I'd be asked to play. But yeah, now Rhaegar, excellent choice. Who is the uh, who's your other one? The, the second one is my favorite little asshole in *A Song of Ice and Fire*, which is Marillion. He's actually not my favorite at oh, all because he's such a terrible. True terrible person but he's just like um we can talk about a character later in this this episode um who's just like a petty asshole but like that's like marillion but he's like he's like the guy who like <laughs> learned how to play music just to pick up girls and i don't know anyone like that at all certainly it, not no, no not I, I don't know who that could be <laughs> but, uh, Marillion has the distinction of being uh really petty cowardly and rapey which is uh, all, all the makes for a relatively terrible um concoction of, of a character um so he would definitely be the anyway here's wonderwall of the song of ice and fire world like i have to imagine like uh some of these guys who are these bards and we we did talk about this at, at one of our earlier episodes like george seems to have it out for like the bardic class in, in fantasy right like he just like really wants these guys he just, likes making fun of them a bit for sure making fun of them or in the case of marillion like having them go through immense amounts of torture and pain before true. he's maybe killed with no one's really sure or simon silvertongue yeah simon no, silvertongue absolutely true. Baked <laughs> a bowl, you know made into a, a bowl of bullet brown so yeah, there's lots of these these uh, these these characters who are like the anyway here's wonderful of the Song of Ice and Fire world. But I I point out one Rhaegar who's a little bit more neutral, Marillion who's a little you know <laughs> sh- shitty and awful and terrible. But there are there's probably at least one that's a good one, right? I mean, I mean Rhaegar, yeah, Rhaegar is the obvious one. Like there's that uh that bit in Animal House where where a guy's strumming a guitar and John Belushi just walks up to him and grabs the guitar and just smashes it. And that that's Robert vis-a-vis Rhaegar. Robert is just John Belushi smashing Rhaegar's guitar repeatedly. Um, thinking like outside the outside the Bard characters. I was trying to set you up for Mance. Uh, sure, but I was like, you know, the, the Bard yeah, characters yeah. are obvious. Like yeah. that, they they all literally do that. Um. 
uh, Salador San, I bet, would, would, would pull this kind of shit. I bet he would, he would start <laughs> playing music. I don't know if it would probably be more offensive and elaborate than Wonderwall, but I bet he would be interrupting people with music all the time. All those old town assholes. I bet, I bet Lazy Leo would interrupt people <laughs> with like horrible renderings of um, like probably like bad Nirvana covers that he mm. would do. Or like, or he would like mess up the chords to Everlong, even though no one should be able to mess up the chords to Everlong. <laughs> he, you gotta he, drop he the would D. Repeatedly get drop that D. Done. Yeah. Oh uh, no. Exactly. Yeah, Lazy Leo would definitely be that guy, and we'd all have to cheer for him anyways at the end of it, right? I'd be the type of guy. That I he suppose is. so. I suppose he, he would make us. He would make us. Otherwise, his family would kill us. That's, yes. That's 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 just how Lazy Leo rolls. So thank you, Red Relu, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Navacast podcast. You are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Navacast A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, free merch, access to the Nata Slack at our two highest tiers, and bonus episodes. Yes, and our next Patreon bonus episode, which will be coming in a few weeks' time from when we're recording this episode, is going to be a wrap-up of all of all things The Clash of Kings, in which we attempt to talk about A Clash of Kings theories, stuff in A Clash of Kings that tells us about the endgame of Song of Ice and Fire, and then talk about what we're excited about to cover in, in A Storm of Swords. So if you guys remember who are our patrons, we did this for, for A Game of Thrones, in which we talked about all the stuff we were excited for A Clash of Kings. So if you are a patron, you can go back to, like, late or like mid early 2019, you know, and take a look at that, all the stuff we were excited for, and then compare notes to see what we actually ended up talking a lot about in, in when we got to a Clash of Kings. So, yes, it's going to be a lot of fun. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with John, he and Corin Halfhand were running for their lives as the Wildlings blew hunting horns as they pursued them. Let's see if maybe one of them can make it out of make it out alive in this synopsis of a Clash of Kings, John eight. When Corn Halfhand told him to find some brush for a fire, John knew their end was near. It'll be good to feel warm again, if only for a little while, John told himself while he hacked bare branches from the trunk of a dead tree. Ghosts sat on his haunches, watching, silent as ever. Will he howl for me when I'm dead, as Brand's wolf howled when he fell, John wondered. Will Shaggy Dog howl far off in Winterfell, and Greywind and Nymeria, wherever they might be? No, I mean, sometimes I have to stop myself and remember that John is a mere 16 years old and now he's getting his mind around the fact that he's about to die. I, for one, did not realize I was mortal until I was about 26 years old. So John has me by a good 10 years. The moon rises as the sun sinks as John gets a fire going. Corn Halfhand stands over John and comments about how a fire can be as beautiful as a maid on her wedding day. This surprises John, who thinks Corn wouldn't talk of maids and wedding nights. Did Corin love a mate once or get married? Well, John couldn't ask that now. So instead, he spreads his hands over the fire and lets the fire warm his fingers as Corin sits cross-legged near the fire. There were only two of them left in the frost fangs. In flashback, we learn what happened. John had hoped that Dalbridge would hold the wildlings of the past, but then they heard the horn and they knew that Dalbridge was dead. And then the eagle showed up overhead. Stone Snake had aimed his bow, but the bird had flown off as Ebon muttered about wargs and skin changers as John just stood there being like, yeah, fuck those wargs and skin changers. I hate them too. <laughs> they glimpsed the eagle twice more the day after and heard the hunting horn behind them echoing against the mountains. Each time it seemed a little louder, a little closer. When night fell, the half-hand told Ebon to take the squire's garron as well as his own and ride east for Mormont with all haste back the way they had come. The rest of them would draw off the pursuit. Send John, Eben had urged. He could ride as fast as me. John has a different part to play, Corn said. He is half a boy still. No, said Corn. 
He is a man of the Night's Watch. Eben leaves as the moon rises and Stone Snake went east before doubling back southwest to hide the trail. The days and nights then begin to blur as the Night's Watchmen sleep in their saddle and only stop to feed and water their horses before riding again. The three rangers move through woods, ridges, traverse rivers, and attempt to cover their tracks, but the eagle always keeps watch over them. So in the end, it was useless. A Shadowcat had shown up when they were scaling a ridge, and Stone Snake's mare went into a panic and ran before breaking its leg. They did eat the horse that night, and Ghost ate really, really well, too. Sounds not so tasty. Corrin made a porridge with the horse's blood, which tasted awful, but John shoved it down his throat anyways. There was no question of riding double. Stone Snake offered to lay in wait for the pursuit and surprise them when they came. Perhaps he could take a few of them with him down to hell. Corrin refused. If any man in the Night's Watch can make it through the Frost Fangs alone and afoot, it is you, brother. You can go over the mountains that a horse must go around. Make for the fist. Tell Mormont what John saw and how. Tell him that the old powers are waking, that he faces giants and wargs and worse. Tell him that the trees have eyes again. He has no chance, John thought when he watched Stone Snake vanish over a snow-covered ridge, a tiny black bug crawling across a rippling expanse of white. Each successive night grew colder, but Ghost stayed nearby. John could sense that, and Ghost provided company that Corrin could not. Even dreams don't keep John company up here. He has none, at least for the moment. Back, at the, back to the present, Corrin asks if John's sword is sharp. Yes, it is. It is Valyrian steel. Has anyone ever mentioned that Jon Snow's sword is Valyrian steel? Fucking everyone. Corrin then asks if Jon remembers his vows. He does. So Corrin asks that they say their words together, and Jon agrees. Their voices blended as one beneath the rising moon while ghosts listened and the mountains themselves bore witness. Night gathers, and, how, and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch for this night and all the nights to come. But then there were no more words after that. John opens and closes his burnt fingers, has he ever done that before, praying that the old gods would give him strength when he dies bravely. He figures that he would be dead in a day, or maybe two at most. The flames were burning low by then, the warmth fading. The fire will go out. The fire will soon go out, Corn said, but if the wall should ever fall, all the fires will go out. There was nothing John could say to that. He nodded. We may escape them yet, the ranger said, or not. I'm not afraid to die. It was only half a lie. It may not be that e it may not be as so easy as that, John. John did not understand. What do you mean? If we are taken, you must yield. A cast, John says that Mance only spares oathbreakers like Mance Raider himself. Corrin says they'll spare John, but John absolutely does not want to do that. Fuck that. Corrin is commanding John to yield, though. Still upset, John tries to protest, but Corrin cuts him off. Our honor means no more than our lives, so long as the realm is safe. Are you a man of the Night's Watch? Yes, but there is no but, Jon Snow. You are or you are not. Jon sat up straight. I am. Then hear me. If we are taken, you will go over to them as the wildling girl you captured once urged you. You may demand that you they cut they may demand that you cut your cloak to ribbons, that you swear them an oath on your father's grave, that you curse your brothers and your lord commander. You must not balk whatever is asked of you. Do as they bid you, but in your heart, remember who you are and what you are. 
ride with them, eat with them, fight with them for as long as it takes, and watch. What exactly is John supposed to watch for? As to that, Corrin doesn't know. Ghost saw the wildlings digging in the valley by the milk water. John needs to find out what the wildlings were after. That's John's new duty. That's John's new duty. Reluctantly, John agrees, but John begs Corrin to tell Gior Mormont that John never truly broke his vow. Corrin Halfhand gazed at him across the fire, his eyes lost in pools of shadow. When I see him next, I swear it. He gestured at the fire. More wood. I want it bright and hot. John goes to cut some more branches, somehow unaware that Corn is trying to tell John that he's just about to die. The fire sparks hot again, but then Corn tells him that it's time to ride or die, or ride and die, one of the two. And where are they going? They're doubling back. Corn is hoping the fire draws their eyes past them. John's grateful for Corn's idea, as he very definitely does not want to turn cloak. They move cautiously, retracing their steps, moving up to up to a stream. They skirt around it, hugging the cliff sides. They pick their way past fallen rock, up towards a waterfall as the air fills with mist. They enter into the waterfall, but John realizes that there's no way out. They get behind the waterfall, drenching themselves in the process. And John realizes that Corrin knew this place was here. And Corrin confirms as much, having learned about the natural hideout when he was John's age from another older ranger. Corrin seats himself and draws the sword as John takes off his wet cloak and lays it down by the fire. Sleep came at last and with it nightmares. He dreamed of burning castles and dead men rising unquiet from their graves. It was still dark when Corrin woke him. While the half-hand slept, John sat with his back to the cave wall, listening to the water and waiting for the dawn. The next day, Corrin and John eat some horse meat and saddle on up. They emerge from the cave, hopeful that they won't be spotted. But immediately, they see the eagle perched up on the tree. Ghost gives chase, but the bird flaps away. Corrin's mouth hardens, and he turns to John. Here is as good as a place steady to make a stand, he declared. The mouth of the cave shelters us from above, and they cannot get behind us without passing through the mountain. Is your sword sharp, John Snow? Yes, he said. We'll feed the horses. They've served us bravely, poor beasts. John gives his horse some oats and pulls his gloves tight to his hands, reminding himself that he is the shield that guards the realms of men. A hunting horn echoes around them, and Corrin says the wildlings are going to be here soon and to keep Ghost close. John sees the wildlings coming over a ridge a half mile away as Ghost does his silent snarl bit while John attempts to reassure him. The hunters approach warily, perhaps fearing arrows. John counted 14 with eight dogs. Their large, round shields were made of skin stretched over woven wicker and painted with skulls. Around half of them hid their faces behind crude helms of wood and boiled leather. On either wing, archers knotted shafts to the strings of small wood and horn blow bows, but did not loose. The rest seemed to be armed with spears and mauls. One had a chipped stone axe. They wore only what bits of armor they had looted from dead rangers or stolen during raids. Wildlings did not mine or smelt, and there were few smiths and fewer forges north of the wall. Corrin drew his long sword. The tale of how he had taught himself to fight with his left hand after losing half of his right was part of his legend. It was said that he handled a blade better now than ever before. John stood shoulder to shoulder with the big ranger and pulled long claw from its sheath. Despite the chill in the air, sweat stung his eyes. The wildling stopped ten yards below the cave mouth, and a dude dressed in all sorts of animal, giant, and human bones approaches. Corrin addresses him. Rattleshirt, Corrin called down Icy Plate. To the crows, I'd be the Lord of Bones. The rider's helm was made from the broken skull of a giant, and all up and down his arms, bear claws had been sewn to his boiled leather. 
Corin snorted. I see no lord. Only a dog dressed in chicken bones who rattles when he rides. Hal <laughs> owned. Rattleshirt hisses and his horse rears up, rattling the dude. Rattleshirt declares he's going to add Corin's bones to his armor after he boils off his flesh and uses his skull as an oatmeal bowl. Corin challenges Rattleshirt to attack then, but he's not taking the bait. Sure, the wildlings have them outnumbered something like 14 to 2, 7 to 1, and the wildlings have 8 dogs. John and Corin can fight or run, but they're toast either way. Show them, commanded Rattleshirt. The woman reached into a blood-stained sack and drew out a trophy. Eben had been bald as an egg, so she dangled the head by an ear. He died brave, she said. But he died, said Rattleshirt. Same like you. He freed his battle axe, brandishing it above his head. Good steel it was, with a wicked gleam to both blades. Eben was never a man to neglect his weapons. The other wildlings crowded forward beside himself, yelling taunts. A few chose John for their mockery. Is that your wolf boy? The skinny youth called, unlimbering a stone flail. He'll be my cloak before the sun is down. On the other side of the line, another spear wife opened her ragged furs to show John a heavy white breast. Does the baby want his mama? Come have a suck of this, boy. The dogs are barking too. They would shame us into folly. Corn gave John a long look. Remember your orders. Rattleshirt orders archers forward, but then John tells them to stop. He's yielding. They warned me, bastard blood was craven, he heard Corn Halfhand say coldly behind him. I see it is so. Run to your new masters, coward. John's face goes red as he descends to join Rattleshirt, who says they don't like cravens. They don't want them either. But then as an archer pulls off her sheepskin helmet, revealing herself to be Ygritte, she says he's not craven. He's the bastard of Winterfell. But Rattleshirt just wants John to die, and he doesn't trust them. On a rock above them, the eagle flapped its wings and split the air with a scream of fury. The bird hates you, Jon Snow, said Ygritte. And well as he might, he was a man before you killed him. I did not know, said John truthfully, trying to remember the face of the man he had slain in the past. You told me Mance would take me. And he will, Ygritte said. But Rattleshirt still wants John dead. He orders Ragwild to kill him, but the spearwife tells Rattleshirt that John should prove his new allegiance. I'll do whatever you ask. The words came hard, but John said them. Rattleshirt's bone over clattered loudly as he laughed. <laughs> then kill the half-hand, bastard. As if he could, said Corrin. Turn, snow, and die. Corrin's sword comes for John and Longclaw is suddenly in John's hands. The swords meet as John fights back against Corrin, but John is easily outmatched by Corrin as he slows and starts weakening under the force of sword cuts from Corrin Halfhand. But then Ghost bites Corrin's calf and John plants his foot and swings his sword. The ranger was leaning away and for an instant it seemed that John's slash had not touched him. Then a string of red tears appeared across the big man's throat, bright as a ruby necklace, and the blood gushed out of him and Corrin Halfhand fell. Ghost's muzzle was dripping red, but only the point of the bastard's blade was stained, the last half inch. John pulled the direwolf away and knelt with one arm around him. The light was already fading in Corrin's eyes. Sharp, he said, lifting his main fingers. Then his hand fell, and he was gone. He knew, he thought numbly. He knew what they would ask me. He thought of Samuel Tarly then, of Gren and Dullerus Ed, of Pip and Toad back at Castle Black. Had he lost them all as he had lost Bran and Rickon and Rob? Who was he now? What was he? John is dragged to his feet by the wildlings. They ask who he is, but he grit answers. He's Jon Snow of Winterfell, Ned Stark's blood. None of that matters to Browshirt, who still wants Jon dead. 
But he grits says that John yielded. Another wildling says, John killed Corn half hand too. Nope, that was Ghost Spark, according to Brattleshirt. And Brattleshirt is very definitely upset that John killed Corn when Corn was Brattleshirt's kill. Ragwell mocks Brattleshirt for not seeming all that eager to kill Corn, but Brattleshirt changes topics and says he doesn't like John because he's a warg and a crow. But Egret says they're not scared of wargs. Everyone else besides Brattleshirt agrees, and Brattleshirt reluctantly yields. They burn Corn half hand where he'd fallen on a pyre made of pine needles, brush, and broken branches. Some of the wood was still green, and it burned slow and smoky, sending a black plume up into the bright, hard blue of the sky. Afterward, Rattleshirt claimed some charred bones, while the others threw dice for the ranger's gear. Ygritte won his cloak. Will we return by the Skirling Pass? John asked her. He did not know if he could face those heights again, or if his garin could survive a second crossing. No, she said. There's nothing behind us. The look she gave him was sad. By now, Mance is down the milkwater, marching on your wall. And that is the synopsis for A Clash of Kings, John 8. Kind of a moody chapter, which is another way of saying it's a Jon Snow chapter. What did you think, sir? Killer voice acting as always, sir. I Thanks. think you missed your calling more and more with each chapter. So the other climactic chapters of A Clash of Kings are about bloody battles, political transformations, narrow escapes from castles and cities. Not so with John 8, a chapter about two men wandering the wilderness knowing only that they are hunted. The sudden switch to minimalism is appropriate. It reflects how John and Corin are out of options. Their backs are against the wall, so to speak. It's a bleak chapter, but also bracing and galvanizing in its focus. Everything is boiled down to their decisions, their will. What do their oaths mean here at the end of the world and the end of their lives? There's a kind of pattern with the conclusion of John's arcs in each book of the series so far. There's a question of loyalty and vows, the bryonic deep currents of emotion. John feels about John feels really hard stuff about the decision he's facing, but he still is just about to go through with it until he's pulled back by people from carrying out what he wants. Clash follows this pattern, but unlike John's other arc conclusions, this one has our sad boy offering or has our sad boy ordered to fake turn cloak on his vows and pretend to be someone else. There's a off-quoted line that George likes to to say when people ask him why he writes, and it's William Faulkner's The Human Heart in Conflict with Itself is the Only Thing Worth Writing About. And this chapter is perhaps not the true starting point for Jon Snow for his human heart, human heart in conflict with itself conflict. You could trace it back to A Game of Thrones. But it's the point where his identity conflict is really shaped to bound forward in the narrative to A Storm of Swords and A Dance of Dragons and beyond. Tyrion 15 last week found him wandering through dreams of the dead. As John 8 opens, our favorite bastard is also preparing to join the ranks of the fallen. John knew their end was near. It will be good to feel warm again, if only for a little while, he told himself. George starts the chapter with just John and Corrin Halfhand, gradually filling in the gaps so we understand what happened to the other men. Structuring the chapter this way adds to the sense of doom and dread. It's as if they never had a chance. It was always going to end like this. John 7 ended with Squire Dalbridge making his brave last stand, sacrificing his life for his brothers and the cause of the Night's Watch. One by one, they are all forced to make the same choice. Corrin sends Eben to ride for the Fist of the First Men while they draw, draw off pursuit. It doesn't work. The wildlings hunt him down and kill him. He died brave, the wildlings say, but he died all the same. And that's the reality they're facing. 
They're up against not only their pursuers, but their harsh environment. Their enemies kill Eben. Stone Snake is taken out of the group by nothing more than a chance encounter with a starving shadow cat that spooks his horse. The last time John sees him, Stone Snake is a black bug against an endless expanse of white, as John describes it, emphasizing how small and powerless these hardened veterans are now. No matter what they do, no matter how they use their skills, they are marked for death. The eagle is always watching, a black dot of destiny in the sky. Stephen Atwell wrote about how expertly George fuses sorcery with espionage in this scenario. The eagle is being possessed by the spirit of a dead man, but that mystical power is being used by the wildlings for a grounded military purpose, tracking the watchman. George has said he doesn't like how often magic and fantasy functions as a lazy way to erase the playing field. It's more interesting when magic is embedded into the playing field as one of many tools to use. A Clash of Kings is about both political and magical expansions, and these Watchmen are on the knife's edge between those worlds. Yeah, and you kind of wonder whether this is the first time they've ever encountered like a warg or a skin changer, but you have to... I have to imagine they probably have in the past, since they are easily able to identify that John himself is a skin changer and a warg in, in John's seventh chapter. So they know the danger that they're up against, and they know how precarious their situation is, and they are facing it bravely all the same. It's interesting, though, that Corrin Halfin doesn't command John to use magic to skin change ghosts and scout ahead or fight the wilding pursuit party or disrupt the pursuit in any way. As we talked about in John 7, Corrin is aware that John is a warg and a skin changer, so why not use the same magic that or- that Aurel is using to aid in their, their flight away from the wildlings? Well, I think obviously the first part of it is that Corrin is a man of the Night's Watch and uses tools he's comfortable with, ranging, scouting, fighting, etc., the basic tools of a Night's Watchman. Corrin also wouldn't know how to educate John in using his wolf. He wouldn't be like, okay, John, here are the steps you need to take in order to control ghosts to kind of lead the pursuers in an opposite direction or fight them off or whatnot. The second part, which is more important in my mind, is that Corrin Haffin and George R. R. Martin are training John on how to be a ranger. Like you were saying, magic isn't a cheat code to get through a difficult level of the game in A Song of Ice and Fire. And to kind of stay in the video game metaphor, John can't level up until he does the hard thing. Running, sleeping in his saddle, building fires, trying to stay alive in this vast and frozen expanse. Now, recently, I I had the chance to talk with Radio Westeros about young Grift, and I talked about how everyone props his kid up to be absolutely amazing because how well he's been trained and he's a prepared prince. However, all of that training in my estimation has been within a safe classroom environment with no real danger associated with them. That's not the case with John. John's training as a ranger, the leadership lessons he learns from Corn have to be earned the hard way. The overall problem is that John doesn't have a magical mentor figure the same way that Bran has, the Three-Eyed Crow, and Jojen Reed. So in the long term, John is getting his training in the practical ways to survive in the wilderness and the basics of leadership and ranging. But he isn't getting training in on utilizing his warging abilities, and that will signal some problems down the road, especially that one time where Ghost is going nuts because he knows that the he's that John's about to be assassinated. Still, all that being said, Corn Halfen is providing valuable mentorship to Jon Snow here. It's that tough relationship with control that I think mentors have, because you're talking you, you did a great job with Radio Westeros talking about Team Grift. 
And part of the problem there is is they have such control over their perfect prince and such influence over him that he really hasn't faced any danger because he knows it's always a a charade. Whereas the flip side here is that Corrin is giving John real valuable practical experience, but that means he has no control over it. So that means it can all go wrong. And that's that's just that's the reality that young Griff has never had to face that John has to deal with here. And yeah, Corrin is doing his best to to train John and to keep the the mission alive. That that duality of both magic and politics is reflected in his leadership. The warning Corrin sends with Stone Snake isn't about the wildling threat so much as the old powers. Tell Mormont that he faces giants and wargs and worse. Tell him the trees have eyes again. Along the same lines, the duty he lays on John isn't to kill Mance, nor disrupt his political plans. It's to learn if Mance found the magic to break the wall he was looking for up here in the mountains. This is the emergence of the complex dynamic that will dominate John's story in A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons. In the face of the others, the war between the Watch and the Wildlings is absurd, a mutual suicide pact. The wise on both sides know it. Corrin knows it here, and Mance and Dala know it in A Storm of Swords. As Mance tells John, If I sound the horn of winter, the wall will fall. Or so the songs would have me believe. There are those among my people who want nothing more. But once the wall is fallen, Dala said, what will stop the others? That right there is the wisdom that could bring two people together. But that wisdom alone is not enough to wipe the slate clean. There are still long-standing grudges. There are still cultural gaps to cross. There are still individual crises that could spin out of control and doom both sides. Again, George wants magic to enhance the drama of his storytelling, rather than reduce it. Here, rather than disrupting the elemental thrill of the chase, magic adds an extra layer of gravity to it. As Corrin says, there is more at stake than just their own little fire, their own little lives. If the, wall should ever, if the wall should ever fall, all the fires and lives go out. And that's not because of Mance. That's because of the White Walkers. It can be hard to remember the big picture because of how intimately this chapter is written. Nothing but the scraping of the hooves and the whistling of the wind. Just the sun setting behind one peak and the moon rising above another day after day. It feels like the last act of a western when the bloody bill is about to come due. Corrin is so silent, he may as well already be dead. John thinks back to his other pack, his other family, the Starks of Winterfell. He has been sundered from them, just like his fellow watchmen who have died one by one. Will the wolves howl for me, he wonders, wherever they are? What will my life have meant if I die out here so far from home? Even dreams cannot live up here, John thinks. That's not true, as it turns out. John can have dreams up here. Bran opened John's third eye in his last chapter, so he dreams of burning castles and dead men rising unquiet from their graves, which is kind of a a mashup of what's happening at King's Landing and Winterfell. But John can't make sense of any of that. It's kind of just an Easter egg for the reader, so it only deepens his sense of isolation. This chapter is a crucible designed to break him down, physically and psychologically. Yeah, it really is an amazing crucible of magic and of men pursuing them and of course of nature too because 
These hard-bitten, tough men are having a difficult enough time evading the wildlings and their magical eagle, but nature has a role to play here as well. I mean, so much of this chapter reminds me of the chase scene from the movie The Last of the Mohicans, where Hawkeye mm-hmm. and his small band of survivors from Fort Edward try to flee uh, from, from the fort itself and from the ambush that was perpetrated by the Mohawks, led by Magua, and they're pursued by, by Magua and those, his band of Mohawk warriors. Hell, the chase scene even ends behind a waterfall. I see you, George. You like movies too. I like movies. <laughs> Everyone loves movies. The parallel here is that Hawkeye and Corn bear some similarities. They're experts in their craft and living off the land. I mean, I remember Daniel Day-Lewis actually lived off the land in preparation for his role as Hawkeye for, for that movie itself. But they are also foreigners to this wilderness. The wildlings can navigate better and use their tools more effectively. But the most limiting factor, in my opinion, is nature itself. Corrin could be the greatest ranger. Maybe he is, at least since Mance Raider left the, left the Night's Watch. But the frost fangs will slow them all down, horses will lame, and people will die. In John 6, John marveled at the beauty of this alien icy world, talking about all the majesty of crossing bridges with no, with just sky to either side of him, shadow cats stalking their prey, and things like that. But here, that natural beauty that John observed back in John 6, that conceals the danger underneath. Now that John can no longer marvel at that beauty because he's running his ass off, the mountain snows, ice, and shadow cats are actually threats to John's life. And all of those natural threats are leading to the inevitable failure of Corn and John to shake their pursuers. Now, when we talk about George thumbing the scale in a narrative, we think of things like the Red Wedding and Ned's fall from grace. Those things kind of take center stage in our minds. But nature here is acting as one of the impediments for John and Corn to get away when before it was aiding John and company in moving deep into the frost fangs. Hell, it almost reads like George had nature ambush John here, kind of lure John in with his natural beauty and its trappings and the glorious ice caps that he saw on top of the mountains. Not so much the case here, because George is clearly thumbing the scale to have John and Corn end up in that cave and for John to fake Turncloak and to set up his wildling arc in A Storm of Swords. I love that. It's like nature was on his side on the way in, but now he wants to escape. Uh, the trap closes. It's like a Venus fly trap closing around John. And yeah, on reread, it's clear that Corrin was planning on John turning his cloak all along, as soon as that eagle first appeared. He hints as much to Eben, who assumes that his role, riding back to the Fist of the First Men, is the least dangerous one, and begs Corrin to send John instead. It's a heroic impulse. Spare the youngest among us instead of me. John is still half a boy, Eben argues. Corrin counters that John is a man of the watch, who, quote, has a different part to play. That's a revealing choice of words. The irony, of course, is that Eben is the one who dies, and John is the one who lives. John spends the first chunk of this chapter girding himself up inside to die bravely like the other men. But as Corin tells him, it may not be so easy as that. Easy? Yeah, easy. Corin believes that death is not the most terrifying thing about life. A heroic death like John envisions is painful, but over quickly, and there's a simplicity to it. What Corrin wants John to do instead is not so simple. Live on, as an adult, trying to reconcile his human heart and conflict with itself. As Corrin himself said, in order to lead men, you have to know them, an echo of what Ned told his sons. Corrin sent Eben and Stonesnake away based on what he knew of them. He has been learning about John the whole time, and now he is putting what he has learned into practice. Corrin knows that John is brave and takes his duty seriously, but also that he is merciful and empathetic. 
He saw Egret as his fellow person, not a foe. Such a man can convince the wildlings that he is theirs now, while also holding true to his, his watch vows in secret. In short, Corrin sees John as his ideal spy. John protests because becoming a spy feels like a dishonorable move. It feels cowardly in comparison to the other watchmen who faced death honestly without flinching. John swore a vow. He just repeated that vow. Now he is being asked to disavow the Night's Watch and join those who killed his brothers. I just love that scene where they, they say their vows one final time. It's 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 Corn reminding John of what his actual purpose is, even as he's about to ask him to to give up that vow, or at least pretend to give up that vow. He wants John to remember that and keep that in mind as he goes forward in his story. And in a way, Corn is also asking John to give up yet another family, one that where he's actually been accepted as part of. Considering how John was made to sit at the squire's table during Robert's feast back in A Game of Thrones, it's clear that John was an outsider in the castle he grew up in, that castle, of course, being Winterfell. Now here, he's been personally selected by Corrin Halfhand to take part in the ranging, and his skills have been put to use. He's been made to feel like an equal and appear to the best of the Night's Watch. He's special, and that's what any coming-of-age boy wants to feel. It's just special, as I talked about back in John 6. And now Corn wants John to give all of that up for the greater good of safeguarding the realm from Mance Raider and the Wildlings. It's almost like John's been soaring through the skies, thinking he's hot shit and part of a crack team of rangers here. He's elite. But Corn isn't so interesting in burnishing John's legacy or making him feel like part of the team here. Now, there's certainly an aspect of what Corrin does in empowering John to be a leader and all the things that he says about knowing your man and things like that. But the mission supersedes the leadership training now, and the mission is calling for John to act dishonorably. In response, John is aghast because he knows what Corrin is really asking him to do, become an outsider again with the Wildlings and the Night's Watch. His entire personality was shaped by that outsider role he occupied in Winterfell and oppresses on him still. Recall the final conversation piece from A Clash of Kings John 1 where Mormont asked John how it would feel to be a Night's Watchman while his brother got to be king. What was John's response to that? Be troubled and keep my vows. Now Corrin is telling John he has to go beyond simply being troubled by his outsider status. He has to play it discarding his vows for the greater good. Corrin thinks about right and wrong differently than John has so far. In Corrin's view, Honor is not the overall backdrop. It's a tool for the mission like any other. If John is willing to surrender his life to keep others safe, he should be willing to surrender his values as well. What does it matter? Are you saying your values are more important than their lives, John? Corrin has sacrificed his humanity to his duty, to his legend, and he expects the same of John. Corrin tortures prisoners without hesitation after all. This is how he got that way. But George also shows us a glimmer of the man inside the myth in this really beautifully written passage. Corin came and stood over him as the first flame rose up flickering from the shavings of bark and dead dry pine needles. As shy as a maid on her wedding night, the big ranger said in a soft voice, and near as fair, sometimes a man forgets how pretty a fire can be. He was not a man you'd expect to speak of maids and wedding nights. So far as John knew, Corrin had spent his whole life in the watch. Did he ever love a maid or have a wedding? A fire in the darkness becomes a metaphor for the transience of love. How quickly those fires go out along with our youth. Corrin never stops and smells the roses. 
His life is lived for others, not his own simple pleasures. Corin knows he is weaponizing John's youthful innocence, and he knows the cost of that. He does it anyway, because he believes to his bones that it is right for the Watchmen to sacrifice themselves for Westeros. The cloak itself is not important. Cut it to ribbons if the wildlings say so. What matters, Corn says, is the cause for which the cloak stands. It's an important lesson for John about the performance of values versus living and dying on them. Yeah, that's definitely a great distinction to, to have here of the performative value of saying the vows and actually living those vows out. And these guys are definitely living their vows north of the wall here. It also struck me that that great quote you're reading about, Corn's wistful statements about the beauty of a fire as beautiful as a maiden on her wedding night, that leads to John to ask no follow-up questions. It's interesting to me. That unwillingness to follow up with those in authority positions over John doesn't just exist here north of the wall. In Winterfell, John was unable to ever ask Ned about his mother, the man Catelyn had said that Ned must have loved fiercely. But John couldn't broach the topic with Ned because of the awkwardness of living in Winterfell as the acknowledged bastard of Ned Stark. But you can see where John's backstory and upbringing leads John here to where he can't talk with Corrin for fear of rocking the boat. John has to overcome being a wallflower and that will unfold in slow burn style as the narrative progresses. Of course, that Corrin hints at loving a maiden and perhaps being married in his past leads to theories about Corrin having a secret identity, Arthur Dane being perhaps the most popular theory out there. Now, I think the issue with those types of theories is not that George has a huge backstory in mind for Corrin half him. It's rather that George wants to allude, not hint, at Corrin having a life before the wall. But Corrin probably received the same charge that John received from, from Elsie Mormon, and he took it very much to heart. Your duty is here now, the Lord Commander reminded him. Your old life ended when you took the black. Corrin did have a life before the wall, but he has abandoned this in favor of his samurai-like code of dying in defense of the realm. But Corrin knows that his life is about to end. At the end of things, Corrin is feeling a little bit nostalgic, you have to imagine. But he's given up all of that in favor of the code, and this is something that John might have to resist going forward. Who John was as the bastard of Winterfell, as the son of Ned Stark, as having a family he cared about, John can't forget them on the wall in favor of becoming a duty robot. At the same time, as we'll talk about in A Dance with Dragons, John leans a bit too hard towards his family at the expense of his duty in saving Arya, framing his march on Ramsay within the confines of protecting his family. My wonderment is for the future of the story is how John will balance family and duty come the winds of winter and beyond. Will he be constantly struggling with his duty to the Night's Watch and safeguarding the realms of men? Or will he frame his actions going forward within his family? That's a question I think that John struggles with in A Dance with Dragons. I don't think it'll get a resolution in The Wind's Winter. I think it'll be something he'll always struggle with. I agree. I totally agree. I don't think there's an easy answer for him there. And uh, I think it's just a choice that feels like a trap. And that's the same situation that he's facing here. Having laid out what he expects of John if they are trapped, Corrin does his level best to spare John that fate, trying one last time to escape pursuit. Corrin draws upon both his survival skills and the institutional memory of the Night's Watch to lead John to a hidden cave behind a waterfall. The half-hand represents the Watch at its most competent. His tactics give John hope, and the reader as well. Maybe they can still escape. But when they emerge back into the daylight, the eagle is waiting for them. Magic has won the day. Yet Corrin still uses his wiles to position John and himself in an ideal defensive spot so the wildlings can't surround them. The hunting party finally comes into view. The wildlings have the watchmen outnumbered 7 to 1, 
but John takes note of their poor arms and armor. George will expand on this dynamic in A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons. The wildlings pretty much always have the advantage of numbers, but they lack the resources to resist Stannis. The source of this disparity is the wall itself. As Corrin said, people are made of the same stuff on either side of it. The only available means of addressing that disparity has been violence. As Davos says in The Storm of Swords, Watch policy is to execute anyone who dares trade with the wildlings, so of course raiding continues. While George's sympathy in the big picture is clearly with the wildlings and those south of the wall who stick up for them, the drama comes from the complications that inevitably arise on an individual level. Corrin, as John reminds us one last time, is a living legend, and the wildlings are not led by a living legend like Mance Raider, <laughs> or even someone likable like Tormund Giantsbane. No, the wildlings are led by Rattleshirt. And Rattleshirt is neither a terrifying berserker nor a noble guardian of the soil. He's just a petty asshole, because petty <laughs> assholes are a universal constant. Maybe the universal constant. <laughs> What makes life north of the Wall different isn't that there are no tin pot tyrants like Rattleshirt. It's that there is an established culture of resistance to them. When Rattleshirt wants John dead, just because, even after he kills Corrin, the other wildlings stick up for him. South of the Wall, John would probably be dead meat. But up here, his mercy for Egret pays off when she speaks on his behalf. John has to fit into this new culture while also following Corrin's orders to report back to the Watch eventually. Corrin helps John sell it by insulting him, saying that his bastard blood means treachery, convincing the wildlings that John is a genuine oathbreaker. Corrin is probably also trying to get John angry, because John is going to need adrenaline to win the fight. As John thinks, Corrin knew what the wildlings would ask of him. Corrin gave his men's lives away, one by one. And now the half-hand gives up his own. He is the ultimate mentor, challenging John to take him down and replace him at risk of his own life, barely winning the duel by using his warg skills. As Ned told Bran, the only time you can be brave is when you're afraid. Corrin forces John to be afraid, and so forces him to be brave. This is why Corrin keeps asking John if his sword is sharp. Corrin wants to die a clean death as he lived his legend intact, the last samurai. John, meanwhile, is once more caught between worlds, as you were saying. That's the state he's left in at the end of each of his storylines in each book. That's the question that defines John's story. Who are you? No, really. What family, what pack can you be a part of? At the end of book one, he gave up his Stark family. He thinks about them in this chapter. He gave them up for the watch. Has he lost the watch now? Who is his new pack? It's the wildlings, of course. They drag him to his feet. Egret and others save his life from Rattleshirt and take Corn's possessions for their own. In the next book, they will take him to Mance, who is no longer behind them. As Egret reveals to John, he is marching on the wall at last. I remember reading this for the first time and getting just so viscerally excited, so pumped up. The wildling threat has been built up so much in these first two books. Now at last we have arrived. We're going to explore the wildling camp and meet the king beyond the wall. And yet the beginning of A Storm of Swords will remind us once more of the threat of the White Walkers beyond all that. Everything is more complicated and dangerous for John 
as well as everyone else beyond the wall. Thankfully for us, that makes for some great storytelling. Yes, I was so excited when I got to the end of John's story in A Clash of Kings. We were going to have a brand new adventure with John. And and kind of like in that same vein of, of the so-called next time on A Song of Ice and Fire endings in A Clash of Kings, mm-hmm. I do think that John's is the best one there. We're finally going to meet Mance Raider, a character who had been built up since the third chapter in Game of Thrones. If you remember back then, Ned said, told Catelyn that he may need to call the banners to confront Mance Raider at some point down the road. And we were going to confront a new culture and find out who the Wildlings really are, stripped of all the Westerosi biases regarding them and all the stories that Old Nan had told John. More importantly, John had been with the Night's Watch for so much of his story so far in A Song of Ice and Fire. Him joining up with the Wildlings represents a brand new epoch in John's story where he has to establish himself somewhere new. And this also elevates John's identity crisis and struggle to greater heights. And we wonder who Johnson will be when he has to put aside his black cloak. The answer to that question will be revealed in full in a storm of swords. And boy, am I ever excited to get to John's story there. Yes, as great as these last few John chapters in the Clash of Kings, especially have been with Corrin Halfhand. His storyline in Storm is just a, a nonstop roller coaster ride from the Wildland <laughs> camp to his romance with Egret having to leave her to the nonstop fighting on Castle Black to Stannis showing up to becoming Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. It's breathless stuff, but as we've been covering in this episode, it really is all set up here. So that's just kudos to George for writing John Snow for writing John Snow's story so well. Kudos to George indeed. So switching over to foreshadowing groundwork for this episode, Corin tells John that he'll inform Gior Bormont that John never broke his vows the next time he sees them. Hmm? Yeah. That's <laughs> definitely foreshadowing that Gior is going to die, and they're going to talk in Night's Watch Heaven, or I guess maybe Hell. This is the book equivalent of that line Ned has in the show when he says, when I come back, we'll talk about your mother, I promise. Like, very heavily underscored. This is the mentor ironically committing themselves to death moment. So much so that it doesn't even make sense that John is even saying this. Like, if if John is having to go over to the Wildlings, this is in a situation in which they're trapped. So Corrin isn't saying he's going to go over. So, But it, I think George is just trying to get that, that bittersweet moment where Corrin says, yes, I'll tell him, even if only in death. That's, that's a very, very Corrin half-hand moment. So finally, for foreshadowing groundwork, the using of a skull as a drinking bowl slash oatmeal bowl that Rauschert says... That could say repeat beat and dance with dragons when Moore's Umber declares that he'll take Stannis as king if he provides Mance Raider's skull to him. Interestingly, it is not Mance Raider who, of course, is burned at the stake in A Dance with Dragons. Who is it? Dot, dot. It is Rattleshirt. So seemingly Moore's Umber joins up with Stannis. So his own skull was provided as a bowl for Moore's Umber to take Stannis's, Stannis as king, at least temporarily. And Well, not super temporarily because he dies in, in The Winds of Winter. But yes, that is a great little bit of foreshadowing that we have here that George may have just gone back to a Clash Kings right and be like, hey – I can have Rattleshirt occupy this role in A Dance with Dragons. How ironic that the guy who likes wearing bone armor becomes kind of a a bone trophy himself. It's a live live by the sword, die by the sword in that case, for sure. So moving on to our uh, theory slash discussion portion of this episode. So as we were saying, one by one, these Night's Watchmen die, of course. Or do they? Hmm. We see, we hear Squire Dalbridge die. It seems pretty clear that he dies. We hear the horn blow. We don't see his body, but the fact that the wildlings are still chasing the other men seems clear he's dead. Eben, we know for sure, is dead because the wildlings show John and Corrin his uh, beheaded head. And then Corrin, of course, we see die when John kills him. But the one member of this group that we do not see die, we do not see a body for, is Stone Snake. 
He vanishes off into the Frostfangs on foot in this chapter, and that is the last we hear of him. So what do you think, Jeff? Is Stone Snake ever going to come back to the story? And if so, how? So it's interesting. The the order that Corn Halfhand gives Stone Snake is that he's supposed to make for the Fist of the First Men. He does not show up at the Fist of the First Men. Or maybe he did at some point. Maybe he shows up at the Fist of the First Men after Mormont and has run, you know, run his ass off to try and survive there. Uh, but he is not there. So he's, he's not present there. He's known as he's, he's completely unaccounted for. And if there's a character that is unaccounted for in the story, you have to bet that he's likely going to come back. So I, I know that you've written a fair amount about this, but I love the theory. I think that you have written or, or popularized one of the two is, is that stone snake is going to return as a, a prologue point of view character for the winds for a, for a dream of spring or potentially as a epilogue character for the Winds Winter, him being the p- potential eyes for the wall coming down. Like he finally makes it back to the wall. He's he's fought his entire way back through the north, fought through hundreds of thousands <laughs> of wildlings and knights and 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 white walkers, and he's he's finally here. And all of a sudden, boom, the wall comes down. I think that would be a devastating moment for the narrative. Again, Stone Snake is is a very minor character in the story, but George likes to take these minor characters that get mentioned, characters like Chet, who will be covering for Storm Swords in, in the prologue, and make them into prologue point of view characters for the story. So I think there's a potential avenue for Stone Snake to return in the story, and I think it's a great way that George could integrate this missing character into the greater narrative. What do you think, sir? Yeah, I think if George very clearly leaves his his hand open to play with Stone Snake. Because, of course, you can say he's a tertiary character. He's not going to have an important role to play. No one's waiting with bated breath for Stone Snake to return and upend the narrative. He's not even as important as, as Benjen or Rickon or Missing Starks. I don't think they're super important either. <laughs> but, like, it's it's so obvious what George does here. It's so unsubtle. He could so easily have showed us Stone Snake's body. He could, like you say, mm. he could have had Stone Snake turn up at the fist like he was supposed to right before the White Walkers attack. And then he gets wiped out of the Fist of the First Men in a Storm of Swords. Or he makes it back to the wall, but he dies in the battle against the Wildlings. Or he makes it back to the wall and he's still just around, hanging with John in a dance with dragons. You could write mm-hmm. it that way. George chooses to do none of these things. And I think he could have been... I think he could very easily have done that with no plan for what to do with Stone Snake. Maybe he just thought, I'm going to have other stuff that I want to do up north of the wall. I'm going to get Bran up here eventually. Maybe it's going to be useful for me to have a character, to me to have a character who can help or have some information. So this one guy, I, I'm going to drop in. He has his climbing skill, so it's remotely plausible he might survive. And then I can bring him around later, you know, if I need to. But so far, George hasn't hasn't done that. He didn't do that in the Dance with Dragons, even though Bran went beyond the wall, even though John was sending other rangers beyond the wall. So yeah, as you say, elevating characters to a to a prologue or epilogue POV is something George has done. A way of getting a little look on a situation or a setting that we wouldn't get from one of our more permanent POVs. And then usually those one-off POVs get killed off right away at the end of their chapters. <laughs> he did that. Speaking of the Night's Watch, he did that with Chet, North of the Wall, mm. the beginning of A Storm of Swords. We'd met Chet before. He b- briefly becomes the prologue POV to show us his mutiny before it gets wiped away. He did it again with uh, Merit Frey and uh, with Varamir among the Wildlings. Mm-hmm with Kevon Lannister to the epilogue to the Dance with Dragons. So there's an established precedent set. And also, as, as you've talked about before, George has done this uh, so far kind of alternating thing with the prologues where every other book, the prologue is set north of the wall, and then the other time it's set south of the wall. So books one, three, and five, the prologues were set north of the wall, two and four south. If it keeps that up, the Winds of Winter prologue is supposed to feature Jane Westerling. So that indicates it might happen in the Riverlands or the Westerlands, so south of the wall. And then our POV, prologue POV for the final book would be back north of the wall. You do have Stone Snake. He is still 
present in the story. He could easily be your North of the Wall POV, in which case, yeah, I think he would be a POV on the the rise of the White Walkers or their march over the ruins of the Wall or some such glorious image before, you know, he gets killed by them, as, as I imagine would, <laughs> would probably happen in any of that. It would be easy for, you know, this is, I think, a dangling thread George can drop without consequence. Stone Snake can never come back up again, and that's fine. We just assume his body is moldering somewhere up there in the Frost Fangs. <laughs> but it is, it is such a clear-cut case, because certain of those things... Some things like this, it, it takes, I think, an eagle eye, so to speak, to spot. But this is like a blatant case of you have not seen this body. So it, it is interesting to wonder. Right. If you don't see a body, was there an actual murder that took place? You know, I mean, it's 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 great. And I think it's it's a way that George could play with the narrative going forward. Of course, he could drop him as well. And most fans would probably be like, oh, whatever. Whatever happened to Stone Snake? Whatever happened to, we- to Weasel? Remember her from, from Arya's story in exactly. The Clash of Kings? Exactly. We, we, we never see her again. But... I, I imagine we're going to see Stone Snake at some point in the future, or at least have the revelation uh, about his fate, similar to to Benjen Stark, who of course goes missing as well. And George has said that Benjen's Benjen's fate will be revealed at some point down the road for the Winds of Winter or or Dream of Spring. So, yeah, I, I would like for Stone Snake to come back. He he would be cool to come back. I would just uh, hate to have him show up right as the uh, the wall comes down. But womp, that's a ama- Exactly. <laughs> just in time. Like, uh, he's got a cool name, is the thing. He's, his name is Stone Snake. You know, it sounds like it's out of right. Metal Gear Solid or something. You can't, you can't abandon a character with a name like Stone Snake. That's that's a, especially compared to a lame name like Chet. Like Chet's <laughs> a fine character, but his name is just Chet. Ugh, just that one syllable. It's so close to to Chad. Now bring, back, <laughs> bring back Stone Snake. He's awesome. Clint Eastwood plays Stone Snake. Kurt Russell well, you- plays Stone Snake. It's just you know, love that. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, what if its name is actually like Pate and Stone Snake is just like a nickname for him or something that's like that? A, yeah, that's an excellent point because there's there's no way he was named Stone Snake. So I, <laughs> you're totally right. He's probably has he probably named some ordinary ass name like Will or Pate or Chet. And he was <laughs> like, you know, you know what would sound cool up here in the mountains is Stone Snake. <laughs> and everyone else in the group was like, okay, Stone Snake. Guess we're guess guess we're calling guess we're calling Joe Stone Snake now. <laughs> That's probably what happened. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I've Lord Snow, Stone Snake, or like a Slayer, Sam the Slayer, right? That's uh, right. a mocking exactly. Yeah, could be the case as well for uh, for Stone Snake. His his backstory yet to be revealed in in the winds in the uh, Dream Spring prologue or or the Winds Winter epilogues. We'll see how that uh, that pans out. So. I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis on A Clash King's Johnny. As always, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, ViceandFire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way, of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon, Mariful Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, 
Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Smallpaul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the Inn of the Crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and Dismantler of the Patriarchy, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties and the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, and Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society. Thank you so much, as always, to all our High Lords and Ladies for your support. Yeah, thank you folks so much for your support every single month. It means a lot to us. So, join us next week for a Clash of Kings Brand 7, our final chapter to Clash of Kings. I'm sad. I fucking love the Clash of Kings now. I loved it before, but I fucking love it now. In which Bran Stark emerges from the crypts of Winterfell to find devastation and hope awaiting him. And we'll be joined by none other than Manu from the podcast Sans Frontiers, which is great. Brandon, Manu has not been with us since... He was one of our first guests. He came on for mm-hmm. Game of Thrones Brand 4, which is a great early episode that we did, and we're so pleased to have Manu back for that episode. Yes, Manu's one of my favorite people online and just in general. We had a great time with him way back in the day uh, for, for Game of Thrones Brand 4. He's been doing his own great podcast work lately, and he's just uh, always delightful to talk to, so we can't wait to have him on for the final chapter in the Clash of Kings and one of the best chapters in Clash of Kings. Brand 7 is a true work of art, so we can't wait to bring mm-hmm. that to you, all three of us. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you next week for a Clash of Kings brand seven.